Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, it's about the environment. Yes, it's about recycling. But it's also about humanity in all of this. You know, we can't afford to keep kind of assuming that there's this endless supply of materials. And I hope we look back, you know, at this point and go, you know what, that was a beginning of a whole new era of sustainable materials. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. I am so excited today to have at Short Black a sustainability recycling guru of Australia. A very warm welcome to Professor Veena Sahashwala. So good to see you at last. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me, Sandra. I feel so humbled to, to be having a Short Black with you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Now, you know, you wouldn't know this, but I came across you all those years ago at the Eureka Awards that I used to MC. And this particular year, you won. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's taking me back. Thank you, Sandra, for, for reminding me of that. Because sometimes you do tend to forget those early days of that journey when it was, you know, that simplicity of the science that you've done. So I had done all of this scientific research in, you know, recycling waste plastics and showing how it can be used in the making of steel. I just remember in those days, I just sort of felt like, oh my God, people are just going to think this is ridiculous. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, all of that research then led to this prestigious Eureka prize at the time. I, I think I was I was probably more shocked than everybody else in the room. Well, what I love about Australians in science is we actually punch way above our weight and we have for a long time and we really don't celebrate it the way we should. And your award that night kind of set you on an, an incredible path. For those listening to this podcast and who are unaware, our Professor Vina is the 2022 New South Wales Australian of the Year. Critically, though, you're one of the world's leading innovators in the field of sustainable materials and its use and an international award-winning scientist and engineer. You are the founding director of the Sustainable Materials Research and Technology, better called Smart Centre, at the University of New South Wales. And as a result, it resulted in a world-first environmentally friendly process of recycling end-of-life plastics, basically the rubbish, and rubber in an electric arc furnace steel making, resulting in the production of green steel. At the moment, the biggest buzzwords in the world are sustainability, recycling, and how can we get better at it? The world's changed, hasn't it? Australia can no longer dump its waste overseas. How bad is the situation here? Yeah, you know, the world has changed in such a big way, as you say, Sandra. You know, I mean, it's like, we all feel responsible. I mean, that's the thing that I love about living in Australia is that 
everywhere I go, the chats I have are, are all about people wanting to have a chat about the science, but but our sense of responsibility, which I think is really heartwarming to see. It doesn't matter whether, you know, I'm talking to kids and adults and grandparents and people who come to Smart Center and they want to have a look at what we do. I think to me, the important point in all of this has shown me that you know, we've really come such a long way from back in the day when I first started out and that whole sort of green steel journey about doing those experiments in the lab and doing the science. And then, of course, you know, when all these awards happened, I guess for me, there was still a part of me that said, oh, this is not enough. This is not enough. We need to we need to go so beyond just doing the science in the labs. We do need to show its impact. And I guess in those days, it, it was about very much part of having that journey and that conversation, whether there were people in businesses, in our communities. And I think to me, you know, if I kind of fast forward where we are now, and as you said, you know, the world has, has really sort of stopped to in a way reflect who we are as, as human beings, because there is a small part of us that also says, yes, it's about the environment. Yes, it's about recycling. But it's also about humanity in all of this. You know, we can't afford to keep kind of assuming that there's this endless supply of materials and we're just going to keep digging up materials. We're just going to make stuff and then we're going to throw it away. And okay, so it goes to landfill. But you know what? That's somebody else's problem. We don't want to live our lives that way because, you know, inside all of us, there is a piece of us that does say, that as human beings, we want to do the right thing. You know, we don't want to send it away somewhere overseas so that it ends up polluting somebody else's backyard. We don't want to pollute our own backyards. But what do we do? You know, I mean, in a way, there, there's been a, that kind of almost that moment in time. And I hope we look back, you know, at this point and go, you know what, that was a beginning of a whole new era of sustainable materials. So do you think we're past the tipping point? I think we're right right in the midst of it. We're basically all reflecting on what does it mean? You know, so businesses asking that question, communities asking that question, you know, I, I talk to local governments and they want to know what we can do. So I think we're right at that point where now everyone's prepared. Their heart is there. They, you know, we're bringing our heart and our mind together. But the important third element in all of this is that action. You know, we want to bring our hearts, our minds and our hands. We want to start to do stuff. So when I get the garbage and I recycle and I separate it, am I doing enough? This is it. I mean, I think we need to now ask that next question, which is, okay, so what's my local council doing about it? Where is it ending up? Actually, yeah, I might have done all the right things, you know, put the right things in yellow bin or some things that have to go in our green bins. Okay, but then where does it end up? What does the council do about it? Or is there a collaboration or partnership that council might have where a, a business is then putting towards remanufacturing, making something else out of it? And I think to me, that's a nice thing if we can start to ask those questions, because it's not just about the fact that it happens to be waste. It's actually a useful resource. So if it is a useful resource, and if we are going to talk about a whole new era of sustainable materials, you know, we're really saying that this is now going to lift the world in a way that we have never done before. We're not just talking about recycling. We're talking about remanufacturing. We're really enabling communities globally 
to find a way in which we can see this waste as a resource that can then lift so many communities out of poverty. Because I think, remember what we're talking about here is, is enabling those, you know, you think about all the waste pickers in so many different parts of the world. Imagine if they could also start to be part of a local community where it's not just picking up waste, but also putting it towards remanufacturing. But then imagine the next step is we're all making this as the normal part of life where we buy these things that are remanufactured. Well, some people who are listening to this may think that's blue sky and on the never-never, but the truth of the matter is you're doing it right now and councils and businesses have engaged you to help them turn waste into reusable matter. You described yourself as a mega hoarder and most people wouldn't overtly admit to that, especially when you hoard rubbish. And you sort through it to find the gems that can be recycled. In particular, you love the inside of chip packets. Why? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're taking me back to that, that Australian story piece last year. And I, I, I think to me it was, um, it all starts with those little sort of guilty pleasures that, you know, <laughs> where you, you know, you think you're just going to have that a few little chips. And before you know it, you've reached to the bottom of the packet. And of course, I remember you know, all those years ago, looking at it, one, first of all, feeling guilty about the fact that I'd consumed this whole packet of chips by myself <laughs> without <laughs> even realizing. And and you sort of then go, oh, but wait a minute, if it's got all this, I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not just a plastic bag. I mean, it's more to it, all that shiny metal on the inside. It's a metalized packaging. And I mean, of course, packaging has been designed to keep products fresh and it's got a long shelf life and all the good things that it does. But then Part of me was actually really, really excited. So yes, out of that guilty sort of sense came out this excitement going, ah, oh, but wait a minute, well, what that then means is we could be producing all kinds of important metals. If that metal is inside this chip packet, think about all those metalized packaging products. And, and I guess for me, it was suddenly almost that sense that comes from you know, as we all do in our everyday lives, which is, okay, well, I've had my cup of coffee or I've had, you know, my little snack and whatever. But it was almost that sense of excitement where I couldn't go back to the labs <laughs> after the weekend and take it back with me. So, yes, I am a mega hoarder, but to the point where I've got to sort of now upgrade from the little cupboards to the big cupboard I have at home <laughs> where everything's neatly sort of, you know, organized. All my rubbish is properly organized and everything. But that's your inspiration, isn't yes. it? Actually looking at real rubbish. Yes, yes, indeed. And, and absolutely. So it, it's, it's just been one of those things where maybe as a scientist and then, of course, the, the, the scientist in me and then the, the inventor in me goes, okay, but wait, we've got to get that metal produced without affecting its quality, right? Because if you want to be able to make, for example, green aluminium, which is what we've ended up showing after all of those years of research, that metal still has to have all the right qualities. It's still got to have the right specifications. So part of it is also sort of that challenge that says, of course, we know metals like aluminium are totally recyclable. But the other part of the challenge is that it's now layered in this structure, in this packaging. It's attached to plastic. So you've suddenly got multi-layered packaging materials like metal and plastic. So, you know, if you just stop and reflect on how many different things present themselves in that form, your listeners are probably going to start to look at every bit in their house going, okay, here's another one. But the point is that, therefore, why don't we look at 
getting all of that high quality aluminium out. So for me, the question was, okay, well, if our micro factories are able to show that we can do it in a decentralized manner, it just gives every little community, every little town, you know, in a way to come together and go, this is now a fabulous source of an imported metal, and in this case, aluminium. And if we can find a way in which we don't need ginormous big smelters or anything like that, but to do it in a completely different way, in a decentralized, you know, in a micro factory setting, the kinds of things we talk about with micro recycling, it actually then shows that that waste packaging could in a collective manner, you know, every town doesn't have to have a solution. But there could be one in the region. But there could be one in the region, exactly. (laughs) So the key here are these micro labs that you've set up and you're encouraging all the regional areas across the country to consider installing these micro labs. So really you've set up, you know, and you've invented a mini manufacturing centre that's not necessarily portable. Well, well, it is portable really, isn't it? Mm, mm. What was your first big success story in that space? One of the the ones that we ended up showcasing well before this particular green aluminium one, which is in the works right now, is all about our green ceramics. We actually showed that taking waste glass, waste textiles, and by bringing those two very unlikely partners together, (laughs) we were able to show that we could produce high-quality green ceramics made from waste glass and textiles. And that's been one of the earliest ones in our micro factories that we've shown. Not only were we able to show in a demonstration facility at UNSW, but we were able to then take that outside our you know, labs at the university and to take that first step where we show that it can actually be run in a region, as exactly as you said, And to have that producing these beautiful, high quality green ceramics where we can incorporate, you know, local materials. And in this particular case, our first example where we launched it last year in Kuramandra was just so exciting (laughs) because it just meant that, you know, our industry partners, um, you know, that small business partner who who we work with, for him to be able to go, okay, wait, you know, I thought I was just somebody who was collecting waste but wait a minute, I'm now a manufacturer. How cool is that? (laughs) To visualise what you're talking about, we're not talking about a green ceramic bowl. You're talking about turning those thousands of tonnes of landfill of old and discarded or new clothes that end up somewhere and combining that with glass and making construction materials. And it's so good that some of Australia's leading developers are using it in their construction and housing developments, which is incredible. I know. Again, it was it was mind-boggling because, I mean, I don't think this is what, you know, we ever expected. And I guess it just goes to show the Australian spirit uh, at its best. Here we have, you know, researchers out of the university, then working with a small, tiny company in Kuramandra. For most people, when I've told them it's in Kuramandra, people sort of go, oh, where's Kuramandra? Never heard of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess the, the nice thing about that journey of collaboration partnership with our industry partner, you know, our industry partner, Andrew, who, who continues to ramp up and scale up capacity and have more equipment in a year's time for us to be able to get that kind of feedback from businesses and from communities. Um, people can really see how they can all play a part. So the fact that you can have a small area to large facilities People are really, in a way, pushing those boundaries. And we feel that 
that love and that passion for the environment is contagious. It's there in all of us. How have councils responded generally since that story started to circulate? And it's successful. I mean, it really works. Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, it's it's um it's quite interesting. In in the early days when we first set this up and um, the funding that we got through the physical sciences funding here in New South Wales through through the Office of Chief Scientist and Engineer was about okay, well, you know, let's kind of help you along on that first step of you know how do you translate that into the real world, <laughs> and and you know now that it's up and running. In fact, the council who we're partnering with, not too far from. Here in in Sydney, so south of Sydney, in Shoalhaven, again it was one of those things where they were like, "Okay, wait, we've got all this glass, so you're telling me you could take all this waste glass and we could put that with fabric and make green ceramics." And I think to me, it was just almost one of those things where organically, so it was the science, the technology, but I think to me, a big spicy ingredient in that was the passion that we saw. So when we talk about ceramics in, in industrial and building development, I mean, you're talking tiles, yep. wall pieces, <laughs> yes. artwork, yes, vanities, absolutely, kitchen bench tops. Yes. What else? Oh, look, I mean, yeah, you say kitchen bench tops, the splashbacks. And I think to me, all of those beautiful one-off pieces that you can sort of go, well, isn't it just one-off? Oh, okay, you made these beautiful pendant lights. Oh, kitchen bench top. So we installed that in a local community center. Oh, but that's just one off. But before you know it, each of these one off pieces have actually been a, a source of inspiration. When people look at that, they go, oh, actually, this looks pretty amazing. So one of them gave us these beautiful orange color fabrics. And in fact, this particular sort of tile had those colors embedded in it. And I just remember that sense when people came into that community center when it was launched by this local council. I think everyone was so excited because it was like, oh my gosh, so that is that fabric that came from our area. Yes. And I think there's that sense of instant connection that it's our stuff and it's made locally. And I think that sense that, you know, we're all contributing to have a positive message for our communities for our environment. And it has not stopped because I think to me, the fact that you can have wall tiles, as you were saying, and we've had incredible feedback from communities, from councils. And so Shoalhaven City Council received a grant and they're in fact um, setting up their micro factory this year. <laughs> Which is awesome. Really awesome. One of your early success stories and early collaborators was Mervac. And they loved what you were doing and then adopted it into their show homes for their development estates. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I remember all those years ago when that first deployment happened in, in this apartment. And, you know, you feel quite nervous because it's like, oh, my gosh, this is actually going into a real apartment. And you almost can't believe it yourself. You've got to keep pinching yourself. <laughs> and I just remember... More recently, when we had the opportunity to really go back into that apartment and, and have a look at it, I was like, oh, my God, it looks amazing. It still looks amazing. It looks as good as the first day. But the great thing about that success story is that, that was just the beginning. Mm. You often hear in debates about sustainability and recycling and the future of the planet, there's a thread of despair because people get the sense that, you know, there's no real solution. Yeah, yeah. 
of course, I, I can't blame people for thinking, well, where, where are we going with all this? And I think to me, the fact that in this particular example, why we got to where we got to with that first step was to do all the, not only doing the science in the labs, but the rigor, the scientific rigor of years and years of research, development of technology, doing all the testing. It's only then can you actually say that this is now ready as a product. It is comparable and it is competitive. So that was an important thing to be able to say. We've done all of that. We've actually done our homework. So I guess from our point of view, the fact that all of these subsequent deployments that we're doing at this point in time, it's almost like, oh my gosh, this is how far we've already come since that first micro factory was launched in Kuramandra barely about a year ago. Are there exciting new developments on the horizon? Given the name of your program is Short Black, Sandra, it's like, oh my God, my favorite drink in the whole wide world. One of our latest inventions, we're actually using waste coffee as part of the next generation for green steel. Really? Well, do tell. Coffee as a biomaterial contains carbon, contains hydrogen. We've been talking about these elements that we need for making green steel. So guess what? When we've been using all that coffee waste, so it's all coffee waste, when we started doing our research in this area, what we found was this coffee was, get this, doing better, better under some conditions than the traditional Coke. And we were blown away. Oh, my goodness. So, yes, so we had to do the science. We had to publish it. We did all, we've done all of that. So the exciting part is now the plans are afoot to be able to include this as part of the next generation and the future generations of So the world's Green love Steel. affair with coffee, it could save the planet from coal. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I'm sort of just hoping, oh, my gosh. This is green steel is just the beginning. We're going to be proving so many other green metals that we could be making with good old coffee. <laughs> what was it like? I mean, I can't imagine how, how you coped with realising you've just solved this gigantic puzzle. What's that moment like as a scientist when you developed, you know, cutting edge technology that could have a profound difference? Yes, I I. I think somewhere in your heart, it's like your thought bubbles and your imagination is already running a million miles ahead. And and in your mind, it's like, I've already done this. But then you bring it back to reality. All of those scientific sort of measurements, you know, all that work, I've got to prove the hypothesis, I've got to show how it's done, I've got to make all those measurements. And and so in your head, all the thought bubbles are telling you those millions sort of ideas, they're already working. You know, I wake up one morning going, yeah, 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 that's happening. That's running. And then it's like, no, no, wake up, Mina. No, I have a long way to go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think everybody kind of despairs at the tons of landfill that we know we don't see. Should we continue to despair? I mean, you are the voice of optimism and practicality. Can we win this battle? I definitely think we can. I mean, I think as long as you have that science, that engineering, the foundation where we create knowledge. So I think that's important that we've got to remember these things are not easy. They are hard to do. Yes, we all accept it. And the journey of changing our mindsets started out all those years ago when we first started doing all of the science in our labs. But the fact that we've now come a long way and we're now talking about green ceramics, we're talking about green steel and all of these examples and businesses excited about, you know, hey, we can't get enough. We've done the first generation of green steel all those years ago. And here we are, industry partner in Newcastle, wanting to work with us on the next generation. To me, that just goes to show it is that collective future that we're all shaping. Explain for us the green steel technology. How does it work and how does it benefit us? What's it removed from the old school and introduced to the new school of thinking? Yeah, so with green steel, of course, you know, as we fully start to appreciate that we need to bring in elements like hydrogen and we need to use hydrogen, yes, if it is in wherever we generate it, but we need hydrogen for so many different purposes, as we're hearing, of course, all along. But the important challenge, of course, is where is it going to come from? And the other complexity when you start to talk about green steel uh, more broadly is also to recognize that not only do you need hydrogen, you need carbon, you need to make that metal, which is the end product. You know, at the end of the day, that's what steelmakers want to produce. So you've got to be able to think about the holistic picture. It's about ultimately not just recycling and not just saying, well, I'm going to somehow find hydrogen to get it into that furnace and voila, I'm going to make steel. So you're talking about removing the dependency on coal, aren't you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's the buzzword at the moment. That's so, so right because I think and it's about time that we have those conversations because when science shows that it can be done, so for example in our case when we talk about our polymer injection technology injecting materials like you know, waste tyres, We've shown that that science works. We've shown, of course, on industrial scale furnaces that this can be done. So the critical ingredient there was you found a solution for the mountains and mountains of dead tyres that sit in the outback somewhere and take a zillion years to decompose. You've actually found the solution. That was the turning point for green steel, wasn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I think, you know, again, it was matching up at that scale because we know we have millions and millions of tires. So we need to also have an equivalent scale where we, if we are to deliver impact, we have to also show that, you know, steel production that can now look at the possibility of reducing its dependency on coal and coke and to do that with Australian green steel and to do that with a company, for example, the one that we're working with, Mollycorp in Newcastle. I mean, these are the kinds of Australian examples of how we're taking that leadership in not just saying, oh, yeah, the science works and that's great. And, and absolutely all credit to the Australian Research Council and, you know, bodies that support research. 
And if you take that to the next level, we should also be talking about commercialization. How do you translate that science into practice, into commercial outcomes, so that we can deliver on environmental benefits as well as economic benefits? And that's important. So what's the lifespan of a dead tyre? How long does it take to decompose? It could be sitting there for years and years and years. It's, it's ending up in our environment and probably ending up causing more and more harm because think of it this way, when it's a big macro tire or a plastic or whatever, and then it's sitting, you know, exposed to the elements, it's now going to break down, it's going to produce these microparticles, it's going to end up in our water. And to me, it's all the downstream effects of just letting it sit there, not doing anything. So, you know, it's not exactly this thing that you can leave it there and forget about it. It's not inert. It is a material that continues to be active in our world. To be active. Exactly. So we have to acknowledge that when we make products, these products, of course, like everything else, have a use by date. I mean, as tires do on our cars, right? When they reach to the point where it's no longer safe to use, you have to actually say, no, wait a minute, I need my tires replaced. So whichever way tires end up in the waste heap, you can't just assume that, okay, I'm done with it. Now it's no longer useful. Therefore, that product is, is not worthwhile looking at. In fact, that was for me the best thing I could ever find because it was one of those things where it had its life as a tire and it did a great job. And now it was no longer useful physically as a tire. But you know what? Right down at that molecular level, this tire still has all the useful elements in it. So why were we kind of just assuming this was a waste? What we are really saying is that, hey, you know what? It did have its one life as a tire. Now let's look at its next life. And if the next life down at the molecular level can show that we can use carbon and hydrogen and all these important elements that we need to make steel, then why don't we actually redirect that into manufacturing? And that's where, of course, for me, the journey started all those years ago, because it was sort of pretty evident that we were using coal and coke, and that was not sustainable. It was a significant problem in Australia, the stacks and stacks of dead ties that no one knew what to do with. And I remember it might have been about two decades ago when they decided if they shredded them and put them under children's playgrounds, it helped protect children, because that's that spongy stuff at the base of all climbing gyms and things. What's the response been when a community like Newcastle and hopefully Wollongong and, and other coal-centric communities? I think the response has been absolutely positive because I think what we are seeing this is a whole new modern age when it comes to thinking about recycling and remanufacturing. And for communities, you know, if you think about the ability to now redirect all of that waste tires in a specific format that allows us to make green steel means if a community is now saying, well, you know what, I could set up a micro factory that then allows me to customize this waste. And if I can then engineer that waste so that I've got steelmakers wanting to use it, suddenly it's a win-win outcome for both sides, right? The community who can then look at this waste as a way to process it, to then create local jobs, but then also to supply that, to be able to have your steelmaking facility use that. And for us, of course, the nice thing is that we've also got this technology patented. So it allows, you know, Australia to be leading the world in this space. So we are also talking about taking this technology out to the world. 
So part of this kind of thing that gives me goosebumps when I think about it. And more recently, we actually had an industry, steelmaking industry, reach back out to us. And guess what? They're located in Barcelona. Wow. <laughs> and the nice thing was when they took this technology on all those years ago, the, the generation one of green steel, I sort of thought, oh, you know, that's great. But, you know, every so often you stop to think, oh, I wonder how they're going. And then I got this contact out of the blue going. You remember us? We want, oh, next generation green steel. Okay, so, you know, let's talk about that. So I guess to me, it just goes to show whether you're sitting in Australia or in Barcelona, we're all wanting the same thing. We want a better planet. We want a better future. And we, we recognize that all of these waste resources are going to be an important way for us to protect our planet and to preserve these materials it's not an endless supply of materials that we will always have. When we look at our electronic devices, right? People just assume, oh, well, that plastic, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's not recyclable, so let's forget about it. But that's not the answer. We know it's important. We know it's an important part of creating a device. We can't just assume that we've used that device, so now that plastic is no longer worth looking at. So, in fact, one of our other micro factories is where we are taking all of that plastic waste converting that into plastic filament. So it literally, look at it this way, that becomes like a paper for a printer. This plastic filament becomes the feedstock for a 3D printer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so we've now got 3D printers. And we all know 3D printers are the future. Exactly. So suddenly it's like, whoa, okay, all of that. So these applications, these, these micro labs can be tailored to different scientific ideas and each council or region can determine what they need. Absolutely. So you can almost tailor the micro factories. Exactly, exactly. We've got to spread this word. <laughs> How do you feel about constantly hearing this argument over coal? Does it make you happy or sad? For me, it's an argument we have to have. And it's part of an education process, really. It just keeps evolving. Tell me how you feel about it. The nice thing has been, from my perspective, of course, there are always going to be people who are going to be kind of the naysayers, right? But I almost sort of kind of go, nah, okay, well, I've got no time to waste here. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, there are more than enough examples of community leaders, business leaders, local councils, small businesses, people who are excited about the fact that hey, there's an example of a microfactory that I could put in my region. And, you know, what does it take? Okay, well, I'm interested in that plastic waste or I'm interested in glass. So I think what I'm finding amongst people is that the ones who are excited don't lose any time. I mean, our industry partner and, and us at the Smart Center, we were doing a webinar for local councils. And within a week, we've had councils already knocking back on our doors. So I think to me, all of this is a reflection of the fact that in and amongst all of us, in our hearts, there is that voice that always keeps reminding us, what am I doing about this? Yes, it's at an individual level, but then am I having an impact where I work, for example? So if I can work in a business or if I can work in a local government and inspire my colleagues, and that's exactly what we were finding. I mean, you look at examples of you know, companies like the Steelmaker in Newcastle. This company is more than 100 years old and they're embracing recycling and not only re embracing recycling, but the whole notion 
that we want to get to zero colon coke. Unheard of. Exactly. It's so exciting, your world, because it's no longer a dream. You're actually making it a reality. The inner strength that you have comes from somewhere. You graduated university and you were the only woman scientist in your class and you topped the class. And some of your male colleagues weren't that happy. But now it's elevated and transformed into a real leadership role for young women in science. How do you feel about that? And do you carry that consciously? Oh, look, <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I don't necessarily carry it consciously. I guess maybe because part of it is that it's so embedded in who I am. And so for me, it's, it's part of who I am as, as a human being. It's, it's a holistic thing, you know, just like I love my science and my engineering. I, I love to be able to talk about the stories of science and, and engineering and technology and what we do, because I think to me, you just never know um, when you are telling your story as to who you might inspire. Because I do know when I was a young kid, listening to all kinds of inspiring researchers. And I just remember, you know, just having this five minutes with a world famous professor who was in India at the time visiting around and, and giving an incredible lecture. And I was like, oh my gosh, I so want to go and do this. <laughs> and, and even though I guess, you know, he made it really hard because it was like, okay, but, you know, you've got to apply for scholarships and scholarships are very competitive, very difficult. And uh, it would help if you, you know, top your class and you get good marks and all of that. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, yeah, right. <laughs> so for a while, you almost sort of feel, oh, my gosh, now that's a challenge. But in a way, yeah, that was a challenge. And that's what we all face in our lives, whatever that is, ups and downs. But sometimes, you know, you just never know where you get that uplifting voice from. It could be from a place that you would have never imagined. And I think to me, that's what we all need to pay forward is to be able to inspire somebody around you, even if it is that one person who's heard your story or just had, you know, a conversation that then means that they go, ah, you know what? I've always been excited about this. I didn't know this was possible. <laughs> but when you look back, did you ever see your gender as a drawback? Look, you know, I mean, there was no denying that it was tough. There was no question being in that sort of mode when sometimes that sense of isolation that you do face is tough. And the, the city where I lived was really far away from Mumbai, where my parents and my mother still lives there in Mumbai. I, I, I just sort of felt that almost there was a point where even if I needed to just cry on someone's shoulder, I couldn't do that. It's like, where's my mom? I need my mom. Because you studied in the States. I mean, you were born in India and then you you met your husband at university and, yes. and you moved to Australia. I wonder why did you move to Australia of all places? Oh, <laughs> when I left Mumbai, uh, you know, at that age and you sort of, you know, have got all of these challenges that we've talked about, you don't really then consider anything as a challenge. You've overcome a lot already. <laughs> Part of it just says to you, well, okay, you know, really, how hard can it get now? Okay, I've been beaten down. I have been told I can't do this. I've been told I can't do that. And, and a lot of people do see that in their lives, especially when you're a teenager and you're pursuing what you're passionate about. And of course, doing that science and engineering is not easy. And then, of course, it's not easy because you have that sense of isolation. But I think in a way, when that happens, you sort of go, no, you know what? I've gone past that point. You know, how hard can it be? If it is about me doing the hard science and, and that engineering 
but I'm doing it. Why? Because I'm passionate about that subject. That's much more important. All the other social elements that may bring me down. Yeah, fine. You know, it'll tear me down for a day or two. Yeah, of course. But I'll get past it. And I think to me, that's the bit that kind of said that in the longer term, I'm not going to give up. Because there were moments when you do feel that, okay, you know what? Why am I doing this? It's too hard. I can't deal with this. And I think to me, part of that sense of, no, you know what? Let's keep an eye on the bigger picture, what I'm really passionate about. And if there are all these other little bumps along the way, you know what? That's okay. It just teaches me how to be stronger and a better human being. And I'll, I'll find my own way to deal with it. What do you say to young women in STEM? Because there's so many stories of how tough it is for women in STEM. And there's been a lot of support and a lot of growth in that area, but they still find it really tough. Yeah, you know, and I, and I just sort of feel that, of course, it is tough. But I think, again, you've got to balance it in the scheme of things where STEM now, as the way we see it, is what you shape it to be. It's about, yes, the science, the technology, or whatever it is that you're studying. But more importantly, you've got to step up into the bigger picture. It's about ultimately humanity in the way you shape it. Because you might say that, yeah, I might be studying a science or an engineering subject, but actually coupled with that is the passion that I bring. And this is how I want to see myself in the future. So it's about not letting somebody else define what career path you want to choose. You can take those STEM subjects, but you can define those career paths. And I think that's a bit that I find exciting. You know, more and more people who are pursuing STEM are looking for examples of how we can shape STEM as career choices and pathways in the way we shape it. And the way we shape it is the way we want to shape the world. Well, well, let's face it, Veena, the science makes sense. It works. And then when you look at your passion, which is incredibly <laughs> contagious, it's not going to be hard for you to find many champions, is it? No, I mean, clearly you found some to be nominated and then win the 2022 Australian of the Year. What does something like that mean to you? Oh, thank you. That's too kind. That's too kind. Um, oh, gosh, yeah, no, that, was, um, that was really very humbling because uh, when it was put to me that this could be considered, I kept saying, oh, no, 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 really, that's... That's not for me. I'm a scientist. And that's really for people who do all kinds of incredibly amazing things. It's a no-brainer, even though we're speaking with one of the smartest scientists in Australia, the ever-humble Professor Veena Sahajwala. I can't congratulate you enough on not just that award, but recognise everything you're doing for all of us, for all of us on the planet. You're changing lives. You're changing our future and our destiny. It's been such a pleasure to spend some time with you here at Short Black. Wishing you the best of luck and may your contagious passion spread far and wide. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.